Okay, there we go. Hi, guys. It is, we hope that everyone's having a great day. Great day. It is, we are here on, we're on here on the Apraxia Foundation podcast. And as we're so, so excited to have our guest here on the podcast, Cass. Um, it is my name is Jordan Lee Van, as I am the president and founder of the Apraxia Foundation. And prior to us be beginning the podcast, I wanted to tell about what the Apraxia Foundation is. So the Apraxia Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps individuals with childhood apraxia of speech afford research evidence-based services and AAC. It's we believe that communication is a basic human right and everybody should have equal access to services. We are so, so excited. And as we just got wrapped up with our six month speech application process and our three month AAC app application process. And those applications will be going out again. So we're so excited. Um, but without further ado, I'm going to let Laura in introduce herself. She's going to be taking the lead on this podcast, but I will be chiming in because I'm so excited for this podcast. Thank you, Jordan. Um, yes, my name is Laura Smith, SLP and professional advisory for the Apraxia Foundation. And I'm so excited to have our guest, um, Aravin, you're going to have to say your last name for me. <laughs> um, it's Dr. Aravan is how I'm going to refer to him and Dr. Jen Moore. Jen Moore is an SLP. Aravan is a leading researcher in apraxia. And he just came out with an article called Predictors of Functional Communication Outcomes in Children with Idiopathic Motor Speech Disorders. And, um, you know, it really is an interesting study and I'm excited to get into it. So thank you for being here. All right. Thank you, Laura. And thank you, Jordan. This is super exciting for me because I'm just watching all of you on YouTube and social media. And I'm like, I got to meet these people at some point in life. And today is the day. So <laughs> I am super pumped about this. And uh, it is, uh, you know, I'm a speech language pathologist. Um, I do private practice on the side. Um, but I'm mostly a university-based uh, researcher, and uh, my full name is Aravind Namashivayam. I know it's a mouthful. We can use this as a stimuli for testing motor skills and speech. <laughs> a very good uh, multisyllabic word. And uh, been uh, doing research on apraxia thanks to uh, some apraxia foundation and uh, the, actually the apraxia kids grant, like back in the day, uh, which actually created my path towards. Uh, motor speech disorders. So I'm here today, super excited to talk about this. I just wrote your name phonetically, Ervin. Nami uh, Shibayan. Is that Namish correct? Nami Shibayan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such an SLP thing to do, Laura. I know. Yes, it's like right there. The kids are on the podcast, but I really did. It is what was that? Is how did you pronounce it? Because we can test my <laughs> planning right quickly. Okay, so I it is... Namashivayam. Say that one more time. Namashivayam. Nanamashivayam. Vayam. Say that one more time. It is N A M A S S I V A Y A M. So it is syllabic stress. So it's Namashivayam. Nanamashivayam. It's it is a complex word. It's a complex. You, that's a very good try, Jen. Very good try. It's amazing. So, I know the, does the SLP want to jump in, Jen? Like, I want a backward chain. I want a forward chain. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I learned it, too. <laughs> uh, but Jordan, we could work on it later. But if you guys are interested in Jordan working on his motor planning, he has a hilarious marinara <laughs> that I think is on its YouTube or TikTok right now. That was epic marinara yeah you I got it now i've <laughs> been practicing it every day doing like reps every day so i've been getting it down now <laughs> and jen if you could introduce yourself hi my name is jen moore i have a very boring last name it's just more <laughs> one syllable very common <laughs> so 
Um, I'm an SLP. I am practicing in Northern New Jersey. Um, I have, I, I just love all things motor speech and that has kind of been my expertise and, and where I kind of put all my brain power in that area. Um, and that's the focus of my practice. We have a lot of kids coming in that are motor kids and we need to look through a motor speech lens. Um, I'm also a prompt instructor. So I specialize in using the prompt technique, but I do use other techniques as well. And um, that's how I met Aravind back in 2012. Um, and he does a lot of like the prompt research and just in that motor speech to um, world. And we connected and um, our mission is to really bridge that knowledge gap between what's happening in research studies and what's happening in our field. And I know, Lori, you share that passion as well. And we always like DM each other on Instagram about that. But that, there's such a huge like space between what is being recommended and then us clinicians turning it into what's feasible, what is doable, how can we apply this? How can we actually use these research findings? So we're on a mission. And so we're so excited to be here. And I love what um, Jordan and Laura, what you guys are doing with your foundation and just on Instagram and helping families and kids. And, and we're here. We're all for that. So I love that. And I love you guys. And thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank no you problem. so much. Um, that is exactly my passion too, is to bridge the gap between research to clinical practice. Um, because they're, I feel like I just read, of course, I'm not gonna be able to come up with it off the top of my head, but I feel like I just read one where it was like, the turnaround is a really long time, um, <laughs> honestly. So with the air, with the, with the age of social media, I've been able to meet a lot of researchers and turn their research into clinical practice, you know, within basically, I mean, right away, you know? So um, this is great. So thank you guys for being here. So again, um, this research article was predictors of functional com functional communication outcomes in children with idiopathic motor speech disorders. And it's motor speech disorders and not apraxia because uh, maybe Ervin, you can explain why. Okay, that's a very good question. So when we started, um, the study goes back with the back to 2020, 2009 and 2010, when the government of Ontario, uh, which is our provincial government, um, wanted to provide access to all children with motor speech issues, including apraxia, dysarthria, anywhere in the province. So that was the mission of that project. And they said, OK, so we have to develop some tools and identify these children. And it was in 2010, there was barely any papers on apraxia. Mm -hmm. You know, the ASHA definition had just come out. It wasn't actually up. There was not much uptake in the clinical in the, in the field on these uh, definitions. Mm -hmm. Researchers didn't even agree if that definition was good to go back in 2008 and nine. So it was a very unknown time. So we put together some checklists. We, you know, we spoke to Schreiberg. I spoke to Ben Masson from Netherlands. Um, and that checklist um, is based on the Mayo 10. Um, they have the Mayo 11, this, those checklists. So it's kind of an extension of those. And uh, so we left out dysarthria because they, in the province, they go through a special uh, pathway for intervention. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what is left is children without dysarthria, but who still have motor speech issues. And we were like, okay, let's figure this out now. And uh, with this checklist and some assessments, we said one looks like apraxia. And then we had multiple people look at this. We made uh, some refinements to the checklist. And this other population was undefined. They weren't dysarthria. They weren't apraxia. And back in the day, nobody knew what to call them. So they were being put in brackets uh, such as motor speech issues not otherwise specified, mm -hmm. or we, we used to call it um, speech sound disorders with motor speech involvement, SSD, MSI, because we didn't know what to call that disorder back in the day. Um, so now we have some more data that has come out and uh, that is how the, the beginnings of the story is, so. Okay, yes, and so that other, um, that kind of other category, in your article, you're terming it now uh, speech motor delay. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, I've had several conversations with uh, a lot of other professors and researchers, including uh, Schweiberg himself. And what we found is um, you have certain issues that are, you know, you know, I, I watch, uh, you know, Jordan speaking, right? Um, he opened my eyes to actually what is true apraxia, because it kind of gets mixed up with all the other phonological issues, language issues. But when you hear certain pauses and certain lengthening and certain transition problems, and I was like, oh, wow, you know, it it kind of reminds me what should we be focusing on? And thank you for all the posts, Jordan. You know, it is really useful to highlight to people what should they be looking for in children with this disorder. And But this other group of kids absolutely have none of these prosodic issues, you know, transition issues. They have speech sound phonological kind of errors like fronting, backing, deification, stopping, you know, those kind of issues, but not prosody and transition issues. But they have no weakness, no tone issues, no dysarthria, no structural issues, no other drooling, wetness of lips, chewing issues, swallowing issues. So over a period of time, we said, okay, this needs a category, this needs name. And then we reached out to Schreiberg and he says, yep, that's what it is. And in 2017, Schreiberg coined the term uh, speech motor delay at a conference in the Netherlands. That was the first time that term was actually used uh, at the International Motor Speech Conference, where he said, we would like to replace the, this is quote unquote, we would like to replace the placeholder term, which is MSD-NOS, not otherwise specified, with this new term, speech motor delay, moving forward. And then the papers came out in 2019. Um, but I think you pointed out one of the uh, major problems with that is how do you identify these disorders, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, again, for apraxia, we have checklists, we have the DEMS, we have certain materials for that. For speech motor delay, you would basically have to look for delay in the motor speech system, whether mm -hmm. certain organs are differentiating, whether the tongue is differentiating from the lips, whether the lips are moving, um, you know, in certain patterns. So at this moment, it is visual observation. And there is also precision stability index from Schreiberg that you can use, uh, which is, I think, now down to, uh, it was at 50 items, then it became 30, then it became 11. Now it is a one item, um, which is, I think, the lax verbal duration is one of the markers that Schreiberg points out in his 2019 paper for speech motor delay. So that's where we ended up with these two categories now. Yeah, when I've talked to other researchers, some have asked, you know, some have wondered aloud if it really isn't just mild apraxia and is apraxia a spectrum of severities? And if it is, how are we distinguishing a mild apraxia from a speech motor delay. What would you say? What would your opinion be at this current moment in time? Uh, uh, absolutely, that is a brilliant question. And if it wasn't for Jordan, I would be like, hmm. I would still be questioning my my decisions on that. But um, and I think Patricia McCabe and and Jordan have made a great point that there are certain things in apraxia that never go away. It's like if you have a disorder, yes, you can mask it, you can learn, you can practice programming skills, you can do the planning, but on new words, it will still show up, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That, that's where the catch is. And these children don't have those issues. Mm -hmm. And even if they have certain prosodic issues, they completely recover by six. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and if you noticed uh, children with apraxia, they're not talking like that they don't have a tongue being very flat or mm -hmm. they don't talk. It's not a tight lip talking. So there is no lip inversion. There is no saying pish for fish. You don't see those type of errors. Mm -hmm. You don't see errors like ten, dig, log. You don't mm -hmm. see, you know, tongue jaw differentiation or within tongue differentiation issues in apraxia. Mm -hmm. So if you see those things, those are okay when you're younger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For a younger child, um, Jen Moore has amazing posts on her Instagram um, of kids going ta 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 using mm -hmm. the jaw to say ta. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's perfectly okay when you're one year, two years of age. But I've seen kids in therapy 
who are five and six who are doing ten, big. That is speech motor delay because that differentiation of the motor system mm-hmm. hasn't happened when you're older, and that leads to a lot of phonological errors, mm-hmm. which if you're not looking, you might misdiagnose them as phonological kids. Mm, that's so interesting. Yeah. You do say, though, even in your article that unfortunately, even though we are always trying to bridge the gap between research and practice, you did caution in your article about diagnosing SMD at this time. Can you explain why? Absolutely, absolutely. So when I talk to uh, most of these uh, researchers, basically the point is I mostly did the diagnosis by exclusion. We excluded dysarthria. We excluded apraxia. And then we looked for other features or is the lip differentiation okay, the tongue differentiation okay. But what we should have done in the beginning is looked for the markers first. Like the Schreiberg has a bunch of markers, but Schreiberg published them in 2019 (laughs) when we already did the study in 2015. So I actually went backwards in my, my 2019 paper looking for those variables and we did find those variables. And in my 2020 paper, where we did an RCT with the Prompt Institute, we again actually identified these kids, not by exclusion, but actually for looking for markers. So moving forward from 2019, it's possible now to look for it directly. But prior to 2019 and 2017, we were just going by exclude diagnosis by exclusion. So that's why I put a cautionary note that Yes, I have seen these factors and and parameters and variables in these children, but because the study is an older study and the data is kind of updated, we have to be a bit cautious on interpretations. Yeah, that makes sense. And so in terms of treatment though, you would advocate that would they still need a motor planning um, approach or no, or it depends, what's your answer? We don't need a motor planning approach for those kids. You know, they would be perfectly fine with DTTC, Prompt, Kaufman, any of those approaches. They're just going to zoom through. Yeah. No, but isn't it, but don't the principles of motor learning underlie like DTTC or Kaufman? Yes. So, but a motor programming approach would be something like uh, REST. Oh, yeah. Where you're practicing, practicing just the plan. Like what Jordan just said, I was practicing a certain word by trying to find those transitions. That would be a pure programming approach, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So gotcha. any other approach would be okay for these kids. So we don't need to be doing rest on these children. So what about a phonological approach like cycles? Um, that is a, I mean, you're, you're I think hitting a big beehive <laughs> here. I don't know if I want to get or into that. First question. It's okay. <laughs> I just like, as a clinician, like when I'm looking at no, these- No, I am I absolutely- kind of- I, I'm I just joking. Rest, even though I I know what you're saying, but I lump like rest and prompt and DTTC all in motor planning approaches. As a clinician, that's just what I do. Yeah. So when I'm thinking like, would we still approach SMD using? To me, it's like a motor planning approach, like those ones, or that what yeah, yeah, yeah. what we have other is the phonological or traditional articulation approaches. I guess so, that's my question. Am I am I allowed to stir stir the hornet hornet's nest here? <laughs> of course you are. Go. All right. Okay. So Jordan has given us the permission. Okay. So so th- this is in my humble opinion. Um, yeah, I just want your opinion. This is this is a research opinion. You know, I'm sure there are hundreds of clinicians who are going to be like, no, that's not true. From what I can see is, if you use an IPA transcription, and if you are looking down and transcribing using Goldman Fristo, for example. If I just said 10, dig, log, snake, you're just going to score it as correct, 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 right? Mm-hmm. I have some videos that I can just play uh, if, once we stop recording or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you look at my face now, 10, dig, log, snake, the movements mm-hmm. are completely different. Right, right. You, you could ask me, hey, it's perceptually okay. What's the big deal? The big deal is in connected speech, the jaw is too slow to help this articulation. So you're gonna hear like that, 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 they don't like to go that. It's gonna sound very flat bladed, for example, if the jaw cannot separate from the tongue. And you can treat it with a phonological intervention, 
but it's take going to take a very long time yeah because it's like sitting on the sidelines and cheering the tongue to get better hey say this word say this word repeat after me you can do cycles approach on this i'm not saying you can't do mm-hmm. from my practical experience from the clinics from what i've seen is if you just held the jaw down fix the jaw and you force the tongue to differentiate it would work faster a quick example if you get stroke and we get one arm paralyzed the treatment for that is is called constraint induced movement therapy in physiotherapy so what that means is they actually tie your good hand up so by preventing the good hand from moving it's not going to support the weak hand so you cannot use the good hand to be doing all the things so now you're forcing that dissociation so if the jaw is helping think then dig log if you force the jaw into not letting it move you're forcing the tongue to start working now so it's very similar to physiotherapy's constraint induced movement therapy and that is supposed to be the most evidence based intervention in physiotherapy something like that would fix this a lot faster again this is my humble opinion it's an opinion that phonological process errors are primarily from motor disorders underlying immature motor system and you know and th- there is tons of data for that if you ask me where's the data even i can show uh joan mcclellan's data uh fiona gibbons data the ultra ultrasound epg jonathan preston's data where they have shown tongue complexity is sometimes not maturely developed in children with speech sound disorders mm-hmm. and if you fix the tongue complexity you can fix all these problems so yes you can fix sound by sound or you can fix the underlying system right so that's the choice right that's so, so that's my take do you yeah, have yeah i like your take thank you for that jen i want to hear your take I'm, I'm yeah gonna... no we always talk about this too <laughs> like it's such an important topic So the example that I love to give um to families and other clinicians is final consonant deletion. And I put this on my page too, but if a child is having difficulty with jaw stability and they're opening like the, and they can't close the phase of the jaw, right? Closing phase of the jaw to bring that jaw back up. So they say like pa for pop cuz that jaw movement is not under control. So if we just target final consonant deletion as a whole, there's different movement trajectories based on that vowel so i can say pop which is all jaw or i could say keep which is high jaw and then i'm moving my lips so if we're targeting final consonant deletion with a child with motor instability or motor speech deficits they're going to have difficulty with one of those phase movements right so they might be really good with like peep and hoop and you know um beep where it's a high jaw and still struggle with that final consonant deletion when it's paired with a low vowel like an a or an a. so that's really like where i go and is like really kind of tease that out and see where's the breakdown yeah this is why i tell my interns all the time if you just learn therapy like a motor like motor based programming planning principles from the get go you will be able to treat every other speech sound disorder because yeah it is it really is like looking at so much, i think that's what you know cuz i was just trained in the schools you know like i don't know but then when i had ashlyn with all of these issues then that's when i got all of these different trainings and i'm like wow like i'm not looking at anything like this you know i like i would have never been looking at something like that or for example like with ashlyn or a compensatory move that i see kids with apraxia or you know motor involvement do is use their teeth and they can and their lip and they can make the bilabial sound appropriate just like erevan said if you cover up your mouth i can say mama but does it sound like mama 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 she can do it it sounds completely the same and she'll especially do that in running conversation um so all of that is so interesting to look at thank you i do want to keep going though cuz there's just so much more to talk about than the nitty gritty i could go all day with the nitty gritty stuff them, all day that <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so really, um, uh, Jen, you had posted on your social media um, kind of what you felt like were the the great bullet points for clinicians to come out of this article. Would you just summarize those again? Absolutely. I actually have it like right up. <laughs> okay. So, 
I know. So I did, I did too, just in case, but I love it. See, we're so prepared. <laughs> so in Aravind's study, um, new study from 2023, um, their study found one predictor and two clinically relevant components, which is going to predict functional communication outcomes for children with CAS and speech motor delay. So um, the first one was speech complexity. Um, which the children in your study, they administered the Kaufman diagnostic scale. And so what they found was a, the children who can produce more complex syllables and arrogant, like this is, I'm summarizing your study, but you really do pop in. You, you're doing a very good job. A very good job. I'm happy to see this. I'm I thought yeah. I'd let no. give Aravin a break since he obviously approved your social media post. So I thought yeah. I'd let him yeah. have a bit. He has the stamp of <laughs> approval for all research stuff. <laughs> So children who were able to produce more complex syllables like green, where it's like a consonant, consonant, vowel, consonant, they made, they achieved better functional outcomes than children who were limited to the more basic syllable shapes like go, which is like a consonant vowel. Um, and that was um, another major finding was I don't know if you want to pause and talk about that for a second. Or yeah, let's do that because that was let's one of that, my yeah. questions then. So when, yeah, because the kids who did have more complex, like the ability to produce more complex syllable shapes and had, um, you know, a greater repertoire of sounds, those were the ones who made the best, according to my understanding, were the ones who made the best um, progress according to this particular treatment. My question was for the ones who, who did not like, so the kids who are stuck at just the CV level currently like a go, um, would you still recommend this treatment approach or would you, you know, maybe do something like a DTTC or, um, you know, go back, what would be the recommendation for those kids? So I'm going to talk from a research perspective and then I'm going to maybe let Jen get at the other side. Uh, that is, a, a brilliant question. And the reason I'm saying that is because if you told me this question before, I would have put it in the published paper. <laughs> I, would really? have, I, I would have actually put that in the paper saying that maybe you could think about this as this intervention is not appropriate for these kids and maybe something else might have been, uh, should be targeted for the kids who are not showing progress with this. That is exactly how I would, you know, thinking back, I might be like, hmm, that makes actually good sense to uh, Laura. Unfortunately, you didn't talk to me before the paper came out. So <laughs> we just have to keep that in mind when we read the paper now. So this is for the general audience. Uh, but on the other way, when I look at it, what that also means is when I see a kid in therapy who is not having those complex any complex cluster or any late acquired consonant, that is my first priority now. Mm -hmm. So I am going to be target. I'm going to picking those kids. Maybe I can do a screening in the wait list or I can do something when they are waiting in my clinic to see what kind of structures do they have and start triaging them into more intensive interventions because I know without that bigger intervention, they're not going to make the progress. So I might think about it as, these are the kids who need the help in mm -hmm. my clinic. Yeah, thank you, Jen. And that gets me, like, as you guys are talking, like, I always think, like, in your session, what can you do to help facilitate, like, a quicker acquisition of that motor plan? And so we always talk about, like, facilitative context. So with the example of, like, go and green, if we can get the child to say like maybe that R sound with a cluster like green or I always use like greedy granny that game. So I'm always <laughs> thinking like with my R, you know, kids that are working on R as, as that motor plan, um, I always put it in a facilitative context with like a K or a G because that's teaching that like almost co-articulated facilitative mm -hmm. movement. And so I always think like how can I also pre-plan for more complex syllable shapes and phrases too. Uh, we also want to make sure, you know, we could target like a three syllable word or a phrase consisting of three one syllable words. So just mm -hmm. even just planning that as like a piece of the therapy. Yeah. I mean, I guess for me, where my mind goes when I read this, like after I read this paper, like I would still probably, I know that, you know, um, 
Ruth Steckel, when she was talking about DTTC, really was like, you know, that like uh, those ideal candidates for this is for the most like really severe, limited speech, limited syllable structure um, type kiddos. And then it may not be appropriate for children that we're talking about in, in, in currently who have a lot yeah. of a lot of syllables. So I'm, I'm going to put a little uh, interjection there. Um, yeah, please. Because I didn't describe what motor speech treatment protocol is yet. Oh, yes, please. Right? Let's put that so in <laughs> motor speech treatment protocol is actually DTTC. Okay, I did ask that in the Right, so I'm okay. just dropping that that's right so now. That's interesting because, so, okay, I was like, what is this protocol? <laughs> so that's why I'm saying it is not that. So what this tells us is it, it's a variation of DTTC okay. mixed, mixed with um, the motor speech hierarchy goals from prompt, you know, mm -hmm. selecting goals based mm -hmm. on development. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Then the syllable structure is based on, um, you know, the, the syllable structure development um, like Kaufman is using. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do, um, what, is it, what is it called? Uh, approximation, syllable structure approximation approach as in Kaufman, mm -hmm. put together with principles of motor learning, mm -hmm. from Edwin Mass and stuff, with home programming on the top. Yes, okay. So it is DTTC, motor speech hierarchy from prompt, the syllable approximation from Kaufman put together with principles of motor learning and the top of the house is literally the home programming aspects of it. So that is MSTP because the government said they will not endorse a specific program or approach. So oh. we had to put together the best components what we thought back in the day mm -hmm. was from each of these approaches. So it is integrated. Yeah, yeah. So if you think motor speech treatment protocol works, it is because it is having all these best things from everything. Yeah, I mean, this is a clinician's dream because yeah. I hate being constricted to just DTTC. I dislike being constricted to just prompt. And it's quite frankly, not what I do in clinical practice. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, yeah. yeah. Um, so and now you know, going back to your question, on should those kids be getting another treatment now maybe those kids don't change because those kids maybe they need three or four times a week intervention mm -hmm. relative to the kids who are at a higher level where mm -hmm. they have those complex syllable structures and late acquired consonants so now it becomes maybe the dosage should be different for these kids who don't have who haven't acquired those structures versus kids who are okay with twice a week with those acquired structures. I think that would be a very interesting um, study to do next. That really would, because I tell parents, like when I'm, you know, everyone, every parent wants like a crystal ball, which is impossible to give, obviously, but everyone still asks you no matter what. And there's always this first phase that I describe to parents as the hardest. And I'm not quite sure how long the phase is going to take, but the phase is, the, what the child is giving me and what they can do, I need their brain to know how their mouth just did it. And that's the first phase. Once I get the words they already are saying and, and, and the sounds that they know how to say, and once I, we can combine them and they pretty much can become an accurate, at least an accurate imitator of those and know how to do it, then we're going to fly on to like what I consider in my clinician brain a second level. But that first hump is so hard. So it makes me think that the kids who have, you know, been able to acquire the more complex syllable shapes, that perhaps they are already over that first hump. And once they're over that first hump, I do not recommend three to five times a week. That, uh, absolutely. That exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that is, a, I think, a very good way to reinterpret this paper. Again, Laura, we should have spoken about this before I published this paper. <laughs> that would have been a very good clinical point to add to that paper. And if anybody's listening to this uh, future in the future date sometime, please make a note of this point and uh, maybe, you know, try this in your intervention. Well, I really loved, you know, I have a lot of respect for Nancy Kaufman. And I feel like, unfortunately, you know, she spent so much of her time being this amazing clinician <laughs> that it didn't exactly transfer to the research the way I feel like it should for her. Um, so I really, I know she's funding some research studies now, and I know there's some coming out, but I do feel like when I gave that Kaufman test, so um, you have that in here, the KSBT, 
Um, it is a test for apraxia. And, um, you know, a big criticism of the test is that it diagnoses everyone with apraxia because it's just mild, moderate, you know, severe motor involvement. Um, but that was the first test I learned on, you know, <laughs> the DEMS lover, Edith Strand, phenomenal. DEMS is hard to learn. KSPP, yeah, yeah. not hard to learn. <laughs> like that would, and so, the clinician. Yeah. And so I love absolutely. that you included yeah. it. And not only did you include it, it was like one of the best, um, well, you explain it. What 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 was it about the KSPT and the PCC and the focus and all this stuff? Yeah. This so paper? the reason I like KSPT is because it kind of gives you a benchmark of what syllable structure and what place mm -hmm. the child is so that you can just translate it into intervention very quickly. Yes. 100%. It doesn't tell you how you're going to do it from the right from the test, because then you have to take a program and so on. That's a different story. <laughs> but the scale is very interesting in the in the last two pages of that assessment is the KSPT diagnostic rating scale. And that scale has a bunch of benchmarks or a list of items that has been gone through reliability and validity testing in the manual that's published. And it literally lays out that are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? Are you seeing this, uh, you know, any type of these behaviors? And you move from uh, totally oromotor severe apraxia to normal on that uh, six item or seven item scale. And what we found is item roughly around two and a half is was the transition between these simple to complex items. And that was the most predictive of who is going to be functionally successful at the end of this intervention. Yeah. So it wasn't just apraxia or presence or absence of apraxia. It is the skill level of the children on that scale. Mm -hmm. And um, so. Yeah, it was just so, cause yeah, it was, yeah. That I, I really, I really did. I really did like that. And because it's so easy to give, you it's know, a you very give... easy scale to use. It's like 15, 20 minutes, not no. even 20 minutes. I would say 15 minutes to administer that scale. Yeah, which is why I love this for clinical practice. So when I talk about practicality, like in a perfect world, you know, I remember I was interviewed once by a researcher that was like, tell us what Laura Smith, you know, evaluative process is. And I'm like, well, is Medicaid paying? Because then I have 45 minutes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would love to say, you know, in, in a perfect world, I could, you know, do a five hour assessment battery, but um, I have to make like really snap judgments and what's going to give me the biggest bang for yeah. my buck. And, and like, fr from, yeah. a, from a research perspective, I if I wanted to, you know, take this a little further, mm -hmm. I would compare it against DEMS. I would compare it against another test. I would compare it against clinical judgment on the efficiency of the scale because, because it's so fast to administer. Is it still accurately capturing? What is the sensitivity and specificity related to if you consider the DEMS as a gold standard now. Mm -hmm. right. So pending that, this is another tool in the apraxia toolbox. I wouldn't yeah. say it's the end of all. Sure, I would say sure. it's another tool. It's better to have more tools than less tools. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so let's get into the home practice part of this. I was... Um, I was saying before we all kind of recorded this that I feel like you are um, a pioneer in apraxia research in the sense that you are trying to come up or I don't know if you're trying to come up with, but um, your research does like you're the only researcher I would say that I've read that that considers high intensity two days a week and low intensity one day a week when we have a lot of these studies that are really showing anywhere between three to five days a week. However, your program here is diff different in the sense that it is a strategic outline of home practice. So in principles of motor learning, we all know that distributed practice is necessary to get carryover and you know, parent involvement, homework, teachers are the best facilitators of distributed practice for that. But I feel like this program specifically really um, in your paper is a strategic way to get home practice. So um, if you could speak to that. Absolutely. And I think that comes from, um the government actually laying the foundations to say that parents must be involved in intervention. So that's almost like mm -hmm. a mandate to say, mm -hmm. if you're giving intervention to your child, you need to be present. You need to understand what is going on. And, and where did you say you're at? You're in Ontario? Uh, in Toronto. Toronto, okay. 
And so part of that was the motor speech treatment protocol. The, the first five minutes, the clinician actually asked the parent, what was the difficulty in the homework? Where did you struggle? Where did you get stuck? Um, you know, what was the child's reaction? How was the child doing this? And those are the barriers to actually implementing homework at home or home programming. So that's evaluated in the first five minutes. The last 15 minutes of all sessions, the parent is actually integrated into it. They are observing, they are making comments, they are providing the feedback, they are giving the cues, they are making notes, they are coming up with the words. They are actually running part of the therapy session at the end so that when they leave, they actually know to accurately implement what they were doing, not just giving a homework sheet and saying, stamp this every time you hear it, mm-hmm. but actually knowing what the therapist is doing to actually do some of it at home. And the results, I think, is because of that implementation to say parents should be the act, the, the agent of active carryover, mm-hmm. right? And so that has been successful, not just in this thing, but also in other um, other papers um, it's, I think, cited in my paper where the outcomes, you know, how variable outcomes are there in children. Like usually you read a study, some kids get better, some kids are not better. The outcomes become more homogeneous when they all get home practice. They all try and converge. Yes, there is still variability, but it's a lot less when they're all getting home programming, meaning they're more geared towards success um, because they're because of this practice. Mm-hmm. That is so interesting. So I think that because I am a mom to a child who has, you know, very complex communication profile, apraxia included. And I do remember that, you know, trying to do (laughs) speech therapy with her, like a sit down format. And my daughter is very like, like, she's literally like your model client in therapy. She's like that 10% that come in, work hard, never have behavior. It's your daughter, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) And you're a good therapist. That's why. No, because then I would take her home <laughs> and I had a sticker chart. I had a token board. I, you know, I'm offering the moon and the stars. And she's just yeah. like, no, like I am not practicing in a sit down yeah, way. Yeah. So what I found was I knew what the functional targets were. And so then I just incorporated it in daily practice. And then she was fine. She To, to this day, she's fine. If I correct her, she'll be like, she's 14, almost 14 now. And she'll be like, what did I, how did I say? And then she'll do what Jordan did at the beginning, like say it again. And then she'll like keep repeating it until she gets it. But so I'm interested to know, is there variability in how you were able to get parents to work on homework at all? Or was there a specific protocol parents had to follow? Yeah. So I'm going to give a little intro on that. And then I think Jen can uh, add to it. Uh, So what we actually did is we told them to practice. We made them log the time they are practicing. But we told them you have to, the best way to transfer and generalize those targets is to practice in multiple situations, mm-hmm. right? So that yeah. your 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 stimulus becomes generalized in different environments. So practice it when they're playing soccer, when you take them out. Practice when you're getting them an ice cream. Practice, you know, when somebody is talking to them in school. Practice it at near the fridge, when you're cooking dinner, when you're having dinner, when you're going to bed. So it is distributed throughout the day in a few minutes at each point, like exactly like how you said, the moment you spread it out, you're still counting the time. Oh, I did two minutes here. I did five minutes here. I did three minutes here. But then that time adds up over the week to an Mm -hmm. hour, two hours of practice. Yeah. That's how we did it. So, and Jen, do you? Yeah. And that was, that was what people heard one hour and they were like, wait an hour a day. How am I going to do that? And so that was a big stress, you know, point we wanted to stress was that it was just an app, you know, it could be broken up like Aravan described. And, you know, as a, as an SLP and a mom, like, I think as part of our job is to figure out what is feasible for the family, right? How can we get you to that hour? Um, and like, what does that practice look like depending on like the family dynamic? 
And like, I could be the poster person for like chaotic lifestyles, like with four kids and running a practice, like, ah! so like, <laughs> in honesty, like sometimes when I have to work with my son as well, like, it's like, not that like Laura described like that sit down, like he, he's just not into that after a full day of school. So just thinking about, well, what does the home practice look like for kids with you know, sensory differences or kids that are in school all day. And then there's after school activities. And then you're coming home at like five o'clock and then there's dinner, bedtime routine. So it really has to be embedded and we have to get creative as to like how we're um, going to be presenting and practicing those words. And um, like moms that maybe have younger kids who those kids are with them all day, that can look a little bit different than the five-year-old who's in a full day kindergarten program. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I love the the flexibility in that um, because I I actually um, have as much as possible all parents in my sessions, and um, I get a lot of feedback from parents that say they've had SLPs in the past who said they weren't allowed in there or they didn't want them in there because the kid wasn't performing, you know, or they did better with them out. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I would say you know, seven out of ten times the kid's behavior probably is better when their parent isn't out of there or is out of the room. However, the bang for my buck that I get having the parent in there carrying over what I'm doing is far greater than my pristine 30 minutes a week. You did a good job and you're out the door. Like, so it's much better to have the parents right there alongside me, sitting on the floor with me or at the table, learning my cues, learning my feedback, knowing what the targets are, not being willing, you know, being willing to just jump in there and do it than it is to have this like perfect little session. Yeah. And and that goes back to principles of motor learning from Edwin stuff is when you're acquiring something, maybe that focus is important. But when you go into learning and generalization, mm -hmm. you have to have the parent doing the stuff uh, because acquisition is when we are actually teaching the right placement. That's a good job. You're getting the target correct. You're doing whatever you need to do to get the right placement and accuracy. But that is in the first block. But once you get past that, you have to have the parents trying to transfer and you know generalize it to you know different situations. So that mm -hmm. is so awesome. Well, thank you so much, Airman. Where can people find you and your work? Um, very easy. Uh, if you can type my first name, Aravind, and then I got uh, that one down. Yeah, just type my first name, Aravind Speech. <laughs> and Toronto. So you should be able to find my LinkedIn, my university page, uh, probably Facebook where you don't want to go. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe some Instagram posts that'll be fun to watch. And I'm making an effort to make all my papers free to access. So wow. it's paid. Uh, a lot of them are, you know, old papers. I didn't have the money. But now I'm like, okay, this is not serving anybody to publish papers that nobody can access or read. Um, it's only fair that, you know, community put so much effort in me. I need to put something back to the community for them to read. And so last few years, everything is open access. So if you click on my papers, you should be able to download and read. So, thank, you. thank you so much. And Jen, how about you? The easiest way is probably Instagram because I don't have any <laughs> fancy papers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a goal of mine. So um, it would be just on Instagram at Dr. Moore Speech at Dr. Moore Speech, and we'll yeah. put the yeah, yeah. Sorry. And my sorry, my Instagram is arv underscore b l o o r. And I was going to say, that's where you can find all these fun research to clinical practice posts that we are trying to get out there and, and putting our hours in <laughs> to bring it to everyone. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and hopefully we can do this again. I know you're nowhere done. Um, I can see your wheels turning, Aravin. And so that's exciting for Jordan and I because, uh, yeah, we, we're kind of research nerds get off this podcast so many questions but I and and if you ever want to collaborate don't be a stranger <laughs> this is to open to both of you don't be a stranger I'm as chilled as you're looking at we can do some projects will be fun and and Jordan you are an eye-opener for the community and I really really appreciate it and Laura 
you are a pioneer in pushing this forward and you're trying to bridge the gap and this is amazing work and thank you again for providing us the opportunity to come on your platform and say hello and discuss some of this new research you guys are the best always a pleasure jordan if you want to end this up okay okay well um it um well it was really really great to talk to you guys it is we had it is we had made so many important points when it comes to the structure of speech therapy the different frequencies the frequent dur durations um, and it's also with home practice across multiple environments the as well as that because as, as a person with apraxia of speech it's i personally know my speech production can be really really different when i'm talking on like a zoom call or if i'm talking to a camera and people will assume my speech is at this level within my everyday today life but if you see me out in my everyday today life across different situations and such my speech is drastically different so there's so many important points that we talked about within this podcast and with parents and how parents can help. So I would just really like to echo how thankful we are that you guys came on, that you guys talked about this, really dived deep and such, and it's for the work that you guys are doing within the field because it is and the work you guys are doing within this field, because this work that you guys are doing within this field is going to help us support future treatment and different outcomes for people with childhood apraxia of speech. So I would just like to echo, I know I've said it three times, but thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on this podcast. It was really eye-opening. Um, so many questions. Um, but it is, we are going to wrap up. Um, I'm going to stop fan girling now. Um, it is, you can find us on the apraxiafoundation.org. As well, you can find us on Facebook at the Apraxia Foundation and also at Instagram. We are having our Denver, Colorado Festival on October 7th. So I think by the time this airs, we will have celebrated your Apraxia Warriors in Denver, Colorado. But we are are going to have more within the springtime so we're having them in kansas city and in south florida and more so we are so so excited to fundraise for our mission statement also as well it is we have zoom support groups for kids teens adults with apraxia every week as well as parents who have children with apraxia of speech as well as an AAC parent support group for parents who have children who use AAC. Um, so we look forward to seeing you on our Zoom support groups as well and everything we have on in the works as well. Um, we will talk to you guys soon. And once again, fourth time, thank you so much for coming on. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. -bye.